5: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
2: Welcome to today's edition of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Show Podcast. Welcome back in, Friday edition, hour number two. Appreciate all of you hanging out with us as we are rolling through and having a good time with all of you. Buck. I don't know how much attention you've ever paid to this story, but I went to, I think I've talked about this on the show before, I went to a public magnet school in the Nashville area for grades 7 through 12. Um, and it was a school that was academic-focused, and you had to have, they give you like stay nine tests or whatever, they, I think they called the TCAP, uh, Tennessee Comprehensive Assessment Program that you take when you're a kid. And basically, it's for smart kids, uh, to the extent that I can qualify as smart. And uh, 7 through 12, it changed my life immeasurably, right? Uh, I went to public school K through 12, and I got to go to this school, Martin Luther King, grade 7 through 12. And by the way, I think I got, I got an email this morning from one of the guidance counselors saying they're trying to do away with 7th and 8th grade there which is its own crazy story, uh, which I think is an awful idea. But there have been, of late, and I don't know if you've paid a lot of attention to this, Buck, but I, I've kind of paid a great deal of attention to it because of my own academic background. Of late, there have become attacks on high uh, academic courses, whether it's AP courses, whether it's honors courses, whether it's the schools themselves designed for smart kids, as an attack upon equity and sometimes Buck gets focused on hey we don't have the right enrollment the AP history class is not diverse enough uh the the, the people who are taking AP calculus oh they don't have enough uh, of this particular minority in them and so the result is some places say you should just do away with them and i was thinking about that this morning as i was getting ready for the show And I saw this headline from the Daily Mail. Chicago's progressive mayor, Brandon Johnson, announces plan to axe Windy City's high-achieving, selective enrollment high schools to boost equity despite promising not to during an election campaign. And, Buck, you grew up in New York City, which is probably where all this kind of started. I know Boston has their own version Northeast, I think, is where this uh, high-achievement public high school dynamic began. And those schools in both New York City and Boston have also been coming under attack. Chicago, my hometown of Nashville. The idea is, oh, there's too many smart kids there, and if they don't directly reflect what the population of the enrollment is of the overall student body, then we've got to tear them down. I just think this is a direct attack upon the meritocracy itself. We sh- don't we want, shouldn't we want smart kids
1: to be as smart as they possibly can be? This is a, an ongoing and it's, it's fascinating how this plays out. And it's one of those, one of those policy issues where you see that the progressives are actually cruel in the name of diversity or cruel in the name of some higher good because instead of allowing high-achievement high schools or courses to exist, they get very frustrated because you can't actually have these schools and high schools. You know, they can't do, like, the college application holistic nonsense where it's like, oh, the person's essay is why they got in." No, actually, it's skin color. It's affirmative action. It's the things that we all know that they're taking into account more than anything else. But, okay, you see this happening. I mean, the fact that they they can't change the numbers, then they go, well, let's just shut it down. Let's shut it down. And they've done this. They'll shut down schools that outperform other public schools as a, um, a giveaway to the teachers' unions, the thuggery of the lazy and inept teachers' unions. Um, they did that in New York City. They were trying to. They're going to shut down Harlem Success Academy. Young black kids outperforming all of their peers of all races on statewide tests Doing phenomenally well, and there was a movement uh, under de Blasio to shut down the Harlem Success Academy schools. Why? Well, as I said, teachers union stuff, but also, you know what the centerpiece of, of these, some of these charter schools is? Accountability for the kids and the parents. Yes. And, and there's another, and I actually, so, you know, you were, I mean, Clay's like, I mean, there's like the school for geniuses in Tennessee. <laughs> I, I, Clay Travis, but, maybe but, went to the, the way, school I for think, geniuses. I, I
2: think you might also point out that some people would say a genius for kids from Tennessee could be considered an oxymoron in many parts of the country, but yes, this was a, uh, I, I, like, I, I mean, I, 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 do not believe, Buck, here's the way I'll put it to you, because I know you went to a, you were a, at a really good school in New York City. Yeah, I went City to a too. nerd,
1: a nerd school for the yeah, I kids.
2: To, I went to a nerd school in Nashville. Here's a good question, and I would put it this way. I was fortunate to go get a scholarship to George Washington, and then I graduated from Vanderbilt Law School. I think that I would not have achieved any of that if I hadn't gone to Martin Luther King 7th through 12th grade. 7th and 8th grade, I think, were the toughest years academically for me way tougher than college and law school and some people think that's crazy but it was about catching up it was about determining what level of academic achievement you could attain I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you today if I hadn't been able to go to that school
1: and and there's another school in New York City I mean I want we can get back to Chicago's progressive mayor just to point out here that he's going to get rid of these schools because they upset people think about yes. how cruel that is. Think about the how meritocracy
2: it upsets people, uh, on, on the left right uh, now.
1: But, but it's, it's, it's really, it's a sore point on the left because it goes to the failure of, oh, all these, they always do these things where they say, if we just had better student teacher ratio, if we had more resources, if we yes. spent more money, no. What the actual data shows is, do your parents show up to parent teacher night or does a parent show up to parent teacher night? Do the parents make sure the kid arrives at school on time and is picked up if they're at the age where they have to be picked up by an adult who isn't, you know, who cares for them? Do the parents check to see the kid is doing the homework? Is the kid supported in their day to day when they get home? Does someone ask them about their school? Does someone eat dinner with them? It doesn't have to be, you know, filet mignon served by a butler. Does someone sit with the child and talk to them over the dinner table about their day? Nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear that it's it's structural racism, or they want to hear that it's systemic inequality, or they want to hear whatever. And one of the best uh, laboratories of how this uh, elite school system plays out in the whole country, there's Stuyvesant High School. Now, there's a lot of beef between Stuyvesant and my high school, Regis, because we were both free schools, but we were the free private school, and they were obviously public, so it's free. But you had to take a special test for both to get in. Humble Brad Clay, I got into both. But... I remember I showed up on on Stuyvesant test day, and I'm not I'm not kidding when I say it was me and a thousand or so Asian kids. Yeah, and 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 now it was, I, I did not not I super rich
2: day. Asian kids, by the way. These are first generation. Yes. The parents like are engaged. I was going go to it's so
1: important. They the poorest ethnicity per capita in New York City of the sort of you know of the black, white, Hispanic, and Asian is actually Asian. They are poorer per capita, and, and that people this blows people's minds. They cannot believe it until they look up the data, and they say, "Oh my gosh, it's actually true." So it's not that there's all these rich kids, you know. This isn't like the Crazy Rich Asians movie where people are driving Maseratis everywhere and flying on private jets. These are, to your point, immigrants whose parents often speak almost no English. Um, now, Stuyvesant is just the test. There's no. Nothing it's but the, the
2: ultimate meritocracy. You it's sit just, down and it's just how well do you score on a test?
1: And, and it's like the SATs. It's sort of math and probably language arts or reading, or I forget what they call it now, it's been a long time, but it's a, a you know, a verbal section, a math section. All right, Clay. This is from the New York Times, by the way. This is from earlier this year. Because every yeah. year we have to have the same debate, just like they're having in Chicago right now. Of the seven hundred and sixty two new students admitted to Stuyvesant's elite high school next year, how many are black?
2: I would bet that it is 500 Asian, 100 white, uh, and you said 780 or something, like 762
1: you know, six, and students,
2: 75 uh, Hispanic and 75 black, if I were guessing. Seven. That's crazy.
1: Seven. Yeah. Um, now this is very upsetting, very upsetting to the Democrat administration of New York City very upsetting to you. you have to remember clay um I mean I had a friend who was a teacher in one of these like uh, one of these they call them like Renaissance schools and she says that you know all it's all the computers are brand new and there's so much money and there's so much tax dollars and all this stuff they haven't budged the test scores for yeah. black and Hispanic students in the public school system in 40 years they they can't do it now, Harlem Success Academy, charter school systems have had success. It's not that it can't happen, but the system that they're operating in overall does not work. And so there's just this this uh, year in and year out debate, and you know what they want to do? They want to make Stuyvesant a random lottery school. Because then it's like, well, everybody gets a shot, but the point is Stuyvesant is only Stuyvesant, and by the way, fierce debate rivals, so I kind of want to talk some trash about them. We were like, you know, like the Sharks and the Jets from West Side Story? That was Regis and Stuyvesant in debate. Does it get nerdier than this, folks? (laughs) No, it does not. I mean, you can see the pocket protectors right now, those of you listening to us on radio across the country. But they always want to try to shut it down because it is just a, it's a thumb in the eye of the whole system and uh, all the spending and all the money. And it also goes to, the meritocracy you actually see this why are only seven black students getting into stuyvesant this year what is going on Uh, i mean i think the new york city i'm guessing i think it's like 30 percent maybe african-american i have to check on that probably
2: higher than that for public school enrollment too um but but that is the point here is your peer group and this is my one bit of parenting advice to the extent that i have any Your peer group, that is the peer group of your kids, is insanely important when it comes to determining what their overall academic success will be. And if you are, like Buck and I were, surrounded by nerdy kids who care about academics, especially as you hit adolescence, you are more likely to achieve at a high level than if you were surrounded by people who don't care about academics at all.
1: And, you know, we have Dr. Carol Swain uh, coming up. We're talking to her. And, uh, you know, she's going to talk to us about the Harvard president. The Harvard president, Dr. Gay, wanted Roland Fryer Jr. fired and detenured and fired, which is like impossible to do normally. But, Clay, the reason, in part, was his, his data crunching on white and Asian kids get more friends as they are more successful in school. Black and Latino kids, and actually Latino kids more than black kids, according to his data, lose friends as their grades and their test scores improve. What is going Again, just looking at the numbers, that was sacrilege for this tenured, you know, really kind of like hotshot professor at Harvard to put that out there and... Think about the culture that you're
2: creating for young black and Hispanic kids that when they dominate academically, they have less of a good social circle around them. I mean, that's brutal. It's the exact opposite of what should happen.
1: We should just, you know what really helps? Just shut it all down and just say that it's all racism and and never fix anything. That's, that's what the Democrats do. Uh, Throw more money at it and tax you more and say that it's no one's fault. There's no accountability for anybody. And, uh, you know, it's, if people need to pay their fair share of taxes, it would all get better. You know, you worked hard to build your retirement savings, so you deserve an investment that delivers consistent returns without compromising your financial security. Phoenix Capital Group wants to help fuel your growth. You can invest in their corporate bonds through your 401K and IRA to start earning tax-deferred annual returns ranging from 9 to 13%. There are multiple options with different rates and terms to choose from. Phoenix Capital Group is providing investors a new high-yield option investing in domestic energy assets. Start earning these high yields and learn more about multiple offerings today at phxonair.com. Learn more by downloading the free investment packet at phxonair.com. You can diversify your investments and earn 9 to 13% annual interest. Before making investment decisions, carefully consider and review all risks involved. Visit phxonair.com today. <laughs>
6: iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.
0: More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast and this time with
1: a lot more movies.
0: I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
1: He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. Welcome back in everybody. Third hour of Play and Buck kicks off right now. We are joined by Dr. Carol Swain. She's a senior fellow at the Institute for Faith and Culture, also the author of the book The Adversity of Diversity, which was released this past summer. Dr. Swain, honored to have you on the program.
7: It's me I'm quite excited. Thank you for all the good work you do.
1: Thank you so much. Um let, let's start with uh well why uh, your your name has certainly been in the news cycle for the last week or so. Uh, the president of Harvard, uh, still the president as we speak here. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, Dr. Gay. Uh, there are allegations from a friend of the show, Chris Rufo here, and and others that she plagiarized some of your work. I wanted to ask you first about that. I mean, what do you think of those allegations? And what do you think of overall the fact that Dr. Gay seems to be held to a different standard than other university presidents like University of Pennsylvania's who have already resigned?
7: Well, she is a documented serial plagiarist that that cannot be denied. And Harvard University can't decide unilaterally that they're going to change the definition of plagiarism just to protect its first ever black president. So that is certainly the case, and she lifted two passages from my prize-winning book, Black Faces, Black Interests, the Representation of African Americans in Congress, but her harm to me, I contend, go far beyond that because she did her early research in the area where I was the noted scholar who produced the path-breaking work. She built on my work and she did not give me proper acknowledgement or attribution. As a scholar, if you are working in an area where there is a leading professor, you acknowledge that work either to affirm it, to uh, refute it, or to expand it. She would have a citation in her bibliography, but anyone reading Claudine Gay's work would not know that about the work that I was the lead scholar on that was considered path-breaking. So that's one issue. The other issue is to get early tenure at Princeton, the requirements back in the 1990s was that you had to have a path-breaking book, not a s- series of mediocre articles. And my book won three national prizes, was cited by many uh, law courts as well as the Supreme Court. I had three Supreme Court citations. That was the path-breaking work that she should have acknowledged in her career. She did not, really.
2: Dr. Swain, I appreciate you coming on. This is Clay. Uh, and I, I first want to say, glad that you have been at Vanderbilt University in the law school and the undergrad. I went to the law school. I think you've done fantastic work there. Um, you're, you're, my understanding is you're a mom, a grandma, and a great-grandma. So I want to look at it from this perspective. When you see what Harvard is saying to defend their president right now, Claudine Gay, not only as a scholar, obviously, because you have achieved a tremendous amount uh, in your career, but as a mom, grandma, and great-grandma, what do you think when the NAACP says it's racist to question uh, Dr. Gay in any way about her scholarship?
7: Well, I've been black all of my life and all of my life whenever a black person was challenged on the left the uh, reaction from the elites it, it's always racist and so you can't challenge one of their um, fellow elite blacks without hearing the, the charge that it has to be racist it always has to be racist if you're white you have to be a white supremacist I would say that the people uh, from the NAACP don't really understand the issue. And one of the nuances of the issue as it pertains to me is that in her published work that we now know that parts of it was plagiarized, uh, she, in my opinion, cheated me out of citations because in academia, your statue depends on how many citations you get. And if there's someone working in an area where you did pathbreaking work, and they're not adequately citing your work or acknowledging it. It hurts you over time. And so I'm a person, I took early retirement from Vanderbilt in 2017, but largely because of the woke environment. And and when I look at her, who is, quote, a distinguished professor, she won a prize for her senior thesis. She won a prize for her dissertation. And now we know she is a serial I believe that people like her who have had the most elite education, she went to Phillips Exeter Academy uh, uh, for her high school. Then she went to Harvard University and was tenured at Stanford University. She's education that America has to offer, and yet she has not produced any path-breaking work. Uh, I would say her work is mediocre. As be- at best, it should not have warranted at
1: Stanford Dr. Swain um, you no doubt uh, have I'm sure thought about what the future holds here in the environment where the Supreme Court has weighed in uh, most recently on affirmative action in college admissions and deemed it deemed it unconstitutional. Uh, I wanted to know if if you think that given all of your time in academia that we are at a turning point for both college admissions, and also for the hiring of professors when it comes to relying on diversity as a primary, really a game-changing indicator of who they're going to take? Or is this just going to be a long series of lawsuits over many, many years to get these schools to start changing how they admit students and how they hire and tenure professors?
7: Well, we're certainly, I believe, at a turning point, and that's the one reason why this book, The Adversity of Diversity, is important because it points out that CRT and DEI programs violate the Constitution and our civil rights laws in the same way as race-based affirmative action. And I also contend that we can have diversity without discrimination. All we have to do is go back to the original intent of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, enforce the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. That does not prohibit outreach to persons, but that outreach needs to be done to qualified individuals of all races. And so it should be uh, the death deal for DEI programs. The left, they've already declared that they're going to resist in the same way as people resisted on the left and on the right. The uh, 1954 Brown versus Board of Education school desegregation ruling it meant for me as a child I did not attend integrated schools until the late 1960s because of the massive resistance. Progressives have have declared that they're going to continue doing what they've always done and I have been encouraging white Americans, Asians, Ameri- Asian Americans, men, Christians, various groups who are protected by the civil rights laws. To exercise, uh, and defend our rights by filing lawsuits. And I know that lawsuits are being won by white Americans and by men who have been discriminated against because they are male, because, uh, you know, they have a female boss or female bosses that have accused them of being, you know, toxic because they're male or they've, and they openly tell men, they tell white people, we have to uh, promote, you know, someone else, you cannot take advantage of this scholarship or this promotion opportunity because of your race. That is blatantly against the law. More Americans need to know their rights. And one of the things I've tried to do with my research is to make them aware. And so even before the adversity of diversity, I published a book, um, Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. DEI and critical race theory, both of those uh, theories are deeply rooted in neo-Marxism. And the end goal of neo-Marxism is to bring down America, to usher in globalism, to get rid of first world countries.
2: Dr. Swain, do you think if if, uh, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, were fired, that it would be an improvement? Do you think it would send an important message? Or is all of this toxicity, with which I think it's fair to say she is a standard bearer for, is it so deeply embedded in these universities now that it doesn't really change anything because the next person up will basically be a clone of uh, of, of Dr. Gay in many ways as well in that they'll b- believe the same things? What should happen in your mind here?
7: and if Harvard University wants to be considered a world-class university again, they have to do something about Dr. Gay because Dr. Gay is an embarrassment to education in America, not just in higher education, but also K through 12. And my hope is that we are at a turning point and that universities, they are losing students because students are not seeing a college education as a good investment. And I have met parents and grandparents who are giving their children an option of taking that college money that was saved up and starting businesses rather than going to a four-year college. So they're losing students, they're losing respect, they're at a point where they could actually do the right thing. And all they have to do is to bring back the original intent of higher education to expose students to a marketplace of ideas to uh, create an environment where you're exposed to new ideas, where you have to wrestle with new ideas, that's how critical thinking takes place. It cannot take place in indoctrination centers. And I would also contend that it hurts racial and ethnic minorities the most, and especially those of us of all races who have worked our butts off to get where we are when they lower the standards and they lower them for someone who's had an opportunity to have the best education that America has to offer and they're lowering the standard for that person. I don't think so. And I said in another interview, I cannot let this go. I can't let it go because the future of American education is at stake and what is happening is harming everyone. And I intend to stay on uh, Dr. Gay's, not Dr. Gay, because I don't know about whether she earned her doctorate, but President Gay's case, just like white on rice, until
2: <laughs> she resigns. Dr. Dr. Swain, you're fantastic. I appreciate you coming on with us and sharing your story, um, and uh, good luck with all those uh, grandkids and great-grandkids as Christmas gets closer. I'm sure you're super busy, as many of us are, with all of that, and we appreciate you giving us that time. Thank you. That is Dr. Carol Swain. I encourage you guys to check her out. She's active on social media, and she is a truth teller in a world where often truth is not told very often, as all too often so many of you have experienced. I want to tell you something. Uh, I just mentioned the holiday season. Uh, Tunnel the to Towers is right now trying to deliver on its promise to do good and never forget the sacrifices America's greatest heroes have made for us, heroes who risk their lives to keep our communities and our country safe, heroes like United States Marine Corps captain and pilot John Jeremy Sachs. He sustained fatal injuries when his military aircraft crashed during training, killing him and five other service members. He's remembered by loved ones as courageous, brilliant, and devoted to his career, family, and friends. Sachs is survived by his wife, Amber, who gave birth to their second daughter three months after his death. Tunnel the Towers paid the mortgage on the family home for Amber and their two daughters. The foundation has helped over 1,000 military and first responder families navigate the worst of times by removing the burden of a mortgage payment. Our nation's heroes and their families need your help now more than ever. Join us in donating $11 a month to Tunnel the Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two,
1: T.org.
6: Play Travis at Buck Sexton, making sense
8: in an insane world.
1: Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, is with us now, sir. Thanks for uh, thanks for calling in.
8: Hey, right, thanks for having me on, fellas. Appreciate it.
1: At this point, a lot of people, I think, would assume the first question that you'd be asked would be something similar to, I believe, what Megyn Kelly asked you in the debate, which is, given your numbers and how things are going, why are you still in the race? Why aren't you endorsing somebody else?
8: Well, because at this point in New Hampshire, which is the first place where folks get to vote in a primary, um, I'm I'm only four points behind Nikki Haley in second place. Um, the only zone of two people in double digits there, besides Donald Trump, and there's five weeks to go in this race, and so we've got a lot of work still to do, and we think we're going to do very very well in New Hampshire, and then move on from there to South Carolina and Michigan.
2: Last time you were on with us, Governor, uh, you said you would have made the catch that Marquez uh, valdez Scandling, uh would have. You said you've been there, you'd have made the catch. <laughs> I bet you would have lined up on sides, too. Um, so uh, the, the Chiefs, it seems to be a theme here, that Chiefs receivers have screwed up and then you come on the show. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah. I wanted <laughs> I wanted to dive into that uh, in particular there with you. You said the last time you were on, I think it was right before Thanksgiving, that if you did decide to drop out, you would endorse Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, that you wouldn't support Vivek, um, and certainly you're not going to support Donald Trump. I think everybody knows that. Uh, It seems to me that you have chosen, when I watched the debate down in Tuscaloosa, it felt to me like you were allied with Nikki Haley. Is it fair to say that Nikki Haley would be your choice in the event you drop out? Have you made a decision about which of those two you would support in the event you withdrew?
8: No, I haven't. And look, you know, people always look at things cynically, and I understand why, um, given the state of politics today. But because I defended Nikki Haley on the debate stage from Vivek's really juvenile attack, people think that somehow that makes me aligned with Nikki Haley. What it makes me aligned with is, is common courtesy. Um, you know, when a 38 year old guy on that stage compares his son, his three year old son's intellect, to the intellect of Nikki Haley, and does so unfavorably, I'm sorry. I just wasn't going to stand there and let him get away with that. Um, he hasn't shown respect to anybody on that stage um, over the course of the last uh, four debates. And at that point, I just had enough. So I would have done the same thing if he had done it to Ron DeSantis.
1: Governor Christie, I wanted to ask you, you know, I, I remember back when you were New Jersey governor and, you know, the Tea Party days, you really made a national name for yourself. By standing up to the teachers union bullies, right? I mean, and that, and they're bullies. They are. And they don't care about the kids. And that's how, you know, you became really a, a household name outside of New Jersey. And, and, you know, I still, I remember watching those clips and, you know, I along with a lot of others were cheering for you because it seemed like, or rather, I believe then you really understood in that case. Who the, you know, the enemy might be too strong a term, but, you know, you understood who who needed to get, uh you know, smacked around a little bit, so to speak, you know, New Jersey style. Now, when we see you on stage, it feels to me, and I've gotten other people, you know, listening to this show, they write in about this, that all of your ire is directed towards not... You know, the, the people that are pushing for the wide open border and not the people that are supporting Soros prosecutor style policies and cities and states all across the country and not the $33 trillion in debt spenders, et cetera, not the radical left and all this, but Donald Trump. And I, I just feel like that, that's something that I, if I were running a debate, I'd want to ask you, why are all the punches directed in Trump's direction and not at the radical left? enemies we have who are really hurting this country and hurting working folks uh, folks and people that, you know, you, you are supposed to be championing?
8: Well, certainly, if you listen to everything that I say, that's not the case. Um, but what I will say is this, when we're looking at the $33 trillion in debt, $8 trillion of it was racked up by Donald Trump in four years, the largest amount of debt ever racked up by a president in four years in the history of this country. And that came from a guy who said he was going to balance the budget in four years. You know, when we're talking about debt, it's that I have continued and did, um, in debate two, directly go after the teachers union and go after Randy Weingarten and Jill Biden directly on the border. I'm the only one who has come up with a plan to try to deal with the border beside, you know, shoot them stone cold dead, um, or build a wall and have Mexico pay for it, which we got lied to about eight years ago. Um, you know, so if you look at these issues, I've talked about all of them. I've been the one who has stood up and given a plan on how we deter China by expanding our, our submarine capability. And it's been reviewed by defense experts saying it was the only person who answered the question directly. Um, I did the very same thing when I was asked about what's going on in our educational system. And then I'm for educational choice for every parent in this country. And I dismantled the Department of Education to do it. So I've said all of those things. But the reason everyone remembers the Donald Trump stuff more particularly is because I'm the only one up there telling the truth about what we're facing. We have a guy who's going on trial this spring who very well will be convicted because his own chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is now going to testify against him. And he could be. Uh, Okay, Okay. Governor
1: Christie, I got to ask you this because you've said this before on the show. Donald Trump is almost 80 years old. He's facing four felony indictments in different jurisdictions. The first felony indictments he's ever faced in his entire life, they all are happening in an election year. They were held for years so it could happen in this election year. Are these political prosecutions?
8: I think the one in New York is a political prosecution, and I think the one in Atlanta I would not have brought if I were the prosecutor. I wouldn't have brought that case against him in particular because he had already been indicted for that federally by Jack Smith and the Department of Justice. But I think the two from the Department of Justice have absolute evidence behind them, uh, and you can see it both in the in the confidential documents case and by the way, if you want to talk about the delay in the confidential documents case, you know what was caused who caused the delay? Donald Trump, who for a year and a half refused. To return the documents. Would you and a half. have brought? You, would, asked, would, you you were a U.S.
2: attorney. Sorry to cut you off, but but you were yes. just saying you wouldn't have uh, you wouldn't have brought the case in uh, in New York or in Atlanta. Correct. Those are both state court uh, cases. If you were yep. a federal prosecutor, would you have brought the cases uh, that Jack Smith has brought both in D.C. and in South Florida? You would have charged Trump.
8: Absolutely, I would have charged them in both. On the documents case, it is so clear. Um, that he will be convicted there um based upon but, the let me just let me just
2: sorry, I, I agree, you we've been analyzed that, but I'm just kind of curious, you're you you're a prosecutor, u s. attorney for a long time. No one has yeah. ever charged a former president, certainly not a, pr- a presidential candidate, in two hundred and forty years of United States history. to me, in order to break that precedent of never having done it before. It seems pretty aggressive and I think personally a poor, awful precedent, regardless of what you think of Trump to try to put the leading presidential contender right now going up against the sitting president in prison for the rest of his life. Aren't you not, are you not troubled by that precedent being set? Because whether you think about Trump, it's unlikely that he's going to be the last guy to face criminal charges once you cross that Rubicon.
8: I'm more troubled by his conduct. And there's no way that we can permit in this country for someone to commit crimes while they're in the White House and and then say, if I declare for president again, you can't prosecute me because I'm running for president again. And I'm sorry, that doesn't put you above the law. There's no one in this country who is above the law. Absolutely no one. And the fact is that Donald Trump caused the, the confidential documents case himself If he had returned those documents at any time in the year and a half they were asking him privately, quietly, by letter, with his lawyers, without even a subpoena being issued, then they issued a subpoena. He refused to do that, and we now have his lawyers
1: out there saying
8: that they told him it was going to be a crime.
1: The the court obviously is now going to – they're going to look at this because the president – President Trump is saying that he's covered by the presidential records act and and this might be adjudicated if this actually goes to court. but uh, but can I ask the you, Governor Chris uh, Act, oh, listen, hold on a second uh, what, 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 well, I, I'm not saying the he's the right or no no way, but we, act to know. I'm not saying he's right, right or wrong. Right, I'm just saying that that's the defense that his legal team is going to mount right. yeah, and it's wrong. <laughs> okay, well, I, I know you think so. I'm telling um, you right but now, i what I wanted to ask you exactly, though, speaking of of the yeah of, of, you know, your sense of, of what's going on here and legally and otherwise. We have one more for you here, Governor Christian, and then we actually want to get to something. We're going to hold you actually because we, we, uh, we're, we're, we're finding this Great. to be a, a fruitful exchange. Uh, so if you could stay with us for another segment, but really quickly, sure. um, do you think that there are not all, but are there some January 6th, uh, prisoners or, you know, people that have been, have been convicted who are treated unfairly before trial and have been treated unduly harshly after in terms of their sentencing?
8: Look, I think the sentencing uh, in this um, was was very very severe. Now, I also think what happened on January sixth was very severe. And so, you know, I'd have to look at each of those individual cases. And to be honest, I haven't looked at the sentence and done comparisons to all of the people.
1: Ah, and their conduct. come on, I haven't. They held they held people for over a year in solitary without them even getting their day in court. Look, the fact of the matter
8: is that people are held all the time in this country, without bail. Do you think there was an insurrection? Right. Without bail.
2: Do you think it was an insurrection?
8: I think it was a riot.
2: Yeah. I mean, we agree that it was a, a riot. Right, yeah. Right. But, I mean, it's I it in order to and hold so somebody, see, you know this, in order to hold somebody in solitary confinement, you have to believe that they are a direct, legitimate threat. You would know the criteria far better than Buck and I would. I can't imagine that you think some guy walking around Uh, you know, dressed as a caveman inside of, uh, the U.S. Capitol is, is in danger of toppling the country. Well, I don't think he was held in solitary, but. Right, but guys like that were. We gotta come back. Can you you, come back with us? Come back.
1: Governor, we gotta, we gotta hit a break here. We got something else we want to ask you from the debate that, that really Clay and I stuck out to us, but we appreciate you showing up and, and, uh, and letting us, you know, ask you some real questions. So we'll come back to you here in just a second. The Preborn Network of Clinics, my friends, they make a remarkable difference. Um, at a time when abortion rights are front and center, Preborn is out there actually giving voice to the unborn and saving lives. They operate a network of clinics nationwide, and communities are most likely to happen. Preborn has rescued over 270,000 babies in their 17-year history, giving pregnant mothers another option. Every day, Preborn's Network of Clinics rescues 200 babies' lives. They do this by providing free ultrasounds, which is a game changer when a woman is on the fence over what to do about an unplanned pregnancy. Once she hears that heartbeat of a baby in the womb, the baby's chance at life is doubled. And now through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled. What could be a better way to spend your money? That extra cash you have. I know it's not a lot these days. Times are tough. But whatever extra cash you can could save babies' lives this Christmas season. Now's the time to put your year-end write-offs to work, including Preborn born in your generosity. Dial pound 250 on your cell phone. Say the keyword baby. That's pound 250. Say baby. Or go to preborn.com slash buck. Sponsored.
6: Open your free iHeart app and search The Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.
0: More Than a Movie is back with Season 2 of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
1: He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny.
2: Uh, I would say uh, Chris Christie I always enjoy it we're throwing questions at him agreeing and disagreeing with a variety of different subjects as by the way one should do in a uh, I think presidential campaign I would imagine the governor would agree everybody shouldn't agree on everything and we should find out what we do agree and disagree on uh, and I want to play a clip yeah, you agree with that, Governor, and uh, we agree. Oh. By the way, would you have, totally not serious before we play a serious clip for you, <laughs> would you have thrown the flag on uh, the uh, Chiefs receiver for lining up offsides uh, offensively at the end of that game, or would you have let that go because it's not that material to the outcome of the play or the game? Well,
8: for, you throw the penalty flag because he was offsides. He was clearly offsides, and you don't know what the result of the play is going to be. Uh, yeah. The result of the play could have been an incomplete. It could have been a sack. you got to throw it when you see it. And, look, it's easy. Those receivers just have to check with the, with the line judge to see if yes. they're on sides or not. And the line judge will advise him. As a typical Chiefs dopey receiver, he didn't do it. <laughs> um, and, and, and he wants to cost his team the game.
2: Uh, all right, we've got a clip we want to play for you. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you a question right after it. But I want to make sure our, our our crew hears it. This is the fourth GOP debate about transgender trans- transitions for kids. Uh, cut 23. I'll let you listen to it too. Uh, here's Chris Christie on the stage in Tuscaloosa.
8: Republicans believe in less government, not more. In less involvement with government, not more in government involvement in people's lives. And you know what, Megan? I trust parents. And we're out there saying that we should empower parents in education. We should empower parents to make more decisions about where their kids go to school. I agree. We should empower parents to be teaching the values that they believe in in their homes without the government telling them what those values should be. And yet, we want to take other parental rights away. I'm sorry. As a father of four, I believe there is no one who loves my children more than me. And I get to make the decisions about my children, not anybody else. And every parent out there who's watching tonight, you start to turn over just a little bit of this authority, the authority they're going to take from you next, you're not going to like.
2: Okay, Governor, I've got three kids. You've got four, so I think parents out there have a variety of opinions. Mine are all minors, and I just want to give you a hypothetical. I couldn't take my kids right now and get them a tattoo. Now, leave aside the fact that my wife would murder me if I did it, right? But let's pretend that I took my 8-year-old uh, to a tattoo parlor right now, and I said I think it's in the best interest for him to get a uh, barbed wire tattoo or, or something, right? I also couldn't take my kid to a bar and get him uh, a beer, even if I thought, hey, he's ready, he can have wine, whatever else. Parents have restrictions on them. I don't believe any child under 18 should be able to have gender adjustment surgery in any way. I think that should be a prohibition. If you can't get tattoos and you can't get beer, don't we restrict parent rights all the time to protect kids? Why is it right to allow, uh, you know, a 14 year old to get her boobs chopped off?
8: Well, look, you're making a, a comparison that I think quite frankly is, is not apt. Um, they they make those rules. They don't say parents can't take their children for a beer. They say anyone under the age of eighteen can't get a beer, whether he walks into the bar on his own or whether he walks in a.
1: Com- and it's in it's under car twenty-one, car. as we know. But yeah, yeah. It's a, sure. yeah
8: and by the way, right. I
2: agree with that, and I'd have the same logic for anybody under eighteen wanting gender right.
1: assignment. If you want to be over eighteen, you can do it. We got one minute, Governor. So go ahead. How how is this not yeah, apples so, to apples?
8: So my point, is, my point is that we are now invading into the House and we're letting government invade into the House on all kinds of different
1: issues. And I don't believe we should add to it. And well, go- but no, with Governor, I, I mean, if if, parents- if you said to me, hold on a second, if if, if someone said, hey, you know, I just think that, that disciplining my kid with a belt and, you know, hitting him with it is good. I don't think it's child abuse. The state doesn't say, yeah, we don't want to interfere.
8: And, and so what you're telling me is that every time a parent spanks a child, um, that they're that they're subject to arrest. I don't think that's what goes on in this country right now, and that's why I think people who are making these type of comparisons are not making apt comparisons. The fact of the matter is, you you've got to either stand up for parental rights or not, and the next time you don't. Then you're going to wind up having the government come in and say you can't do something with your children that is absolutely... Wait,
1: I gotta tell you, we are, we are both I, not sold on this position at all, yeah, Governor. I just we, think we, if and, you
8: can't get a
2: tattoo under 18, uh, you shouldn't be able to yeah, chop g- your Gender boobs mutilation off under for 12
1: year olds is something that we would think that all conservatives could oppose. Um, but sir, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to sandbag you here at the end. So we'll just, we're going to leave Man. it with a, we, we got like 10 Go seconds. Guys. Go ahead.
8: I, yeah. All right. But guys, look. You know, if you're not for parental rights, then I get that you guys are not for parental rights. I am.
1: <laughs> okay, so he's going to sandbag us. All right, Governor Christie, everybody. We gave him his say. Governor, appreciate you coming on. We'll talk to you again. We're going to fight with you again next time. We'll see you next time.
0: More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
1: He has the smarts avido the temper of Sonny, the warmth of fredo and the coldness of michael
0: to the legend behind la bamba lou diamond phillips when i walked
1: in
2: i didn't think i had a shot at richie because john stamos's picture was already up on the wall
0: listen to more than a movie on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
3: hey i'm jay shetty and i'm the host of the on purpose podcast